Well, if you have uh, worked with young people, and most of you in this room have at some time or another, you know that there are those kids who often are from a bad family background, and they attach themselves to your family. Have you had those kids? Yeah, they just they kind of live at your house. Well, Jeff was that kind of guy. In fact, when we moved to the New York area in 1970, it was my privilege to lead Jeff to Christ. He's the first kid we ever led to Christ in that area. It was the night he was going to commit suicide, actually. Well, Jeff would always show up at our house. If our door was unlocked, he'd just walk right in, sit right down in the living room. <laughs> You'd walk into the living room and say, Oh, hi, Jeff. Excuse me while I get my robe. I mean, you just, you know, you weren't, you never knew when he was going to show up. And so you always wore your robe. But we, um, we, we watched him as he went off to the Army, and shortly after he got back from the Army, he headed back over to the house and, the door was unlocked, and he walked in, sat down in the living room, and uh, the strange lady walked in. She said, who are you? He said, where's Ron and Karen? She said, I don't know Ron and Karen. See, we had moved. We just forgot to tell Jeff. Now, it was an honest mistake. He went looking for us where we'd always been. We'd move. Now, why is it that America has become post-Christian when there is more Christian activity going on in America than there has ever been probably anywhere in the church since the first century? Lots of Christian stuff. How could America become post-Christian? Could it be because we're trying to reach them where they used to be? And they moved. And we didn't. And they're not where they were. And so we've got to make sure we are taking the gospel to where they live now. The message doesn't need any alteration or updating at all. It is the ever-relevant, ever-powerful message of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we've got to make sure we're taking it to where they live. And I know that many of us here, uh, I knew when I came here, that I was going to be with people whose hearts beat the same. We are determined, aren't we, to move into the new millennium, to bring in the millennial harvest, to move into the new millennium with a new fire, to rescue the dying, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, to move out of our comfort zone into the combat zone, to fight for lives that have not yet been touched. And I think you are determined as I am to accelerate the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to look at our tools, to look at our toolkit, to look at the influence of our lives and say, how can we speed up the spread of the gospel through the sacrificial giving of the rest of our lives? That's where our hearts are. In order for that to happen, we're going to need to be Issachar people. You remember in the Old Testament when it is said in the time when David was being enthroned as the rightful king of Israel. It says of the men of Issachar that they understood their times and they knew what to do. We need to understand our times and realize that there has been a major, major shift on our watch. While we've been alive, there has been the greatest spiritual shift in the history of this country. We now live on the mission field. We're on it. 
Christianity Today, in an, uh, an addition devoted to evangelism, said that America is now the greatest mission field in the Western Hemisphere. Listen to this. In his book, Effective Church Leadership, Kenan Callahan says this. The day of the professional minister is over. The day of the missionary pastor has come. He's talking about America. The day of the church culture is over. The day of the mission field has come. The day of the local church is over. The day of the mission outpost has come. Martin Marty said, if you are in the evangelical subculture, you go to its meetings, you listen to its broadcasts, you read its books, and you know its heroes. If you are not in the evangelical subculture, you do not even know it exists. A tremendous, larger than ever gap between the world of God's people and the world of the lost in our country. So if we are going to be impact players in the 21st century in America, we have to think missionary. I am not now a Christian worker in a Christian country. I am a missionary to an unreached country. I am a missionary. Now, you may think that's just verbiage, but in the next few minutes you'll see that it affects everything. If you think of working in America the same way you would think as if you were going to a tribe in the Amazon. Think missionary. It will change how you approach rescuing the dying. Now you and I are at a, living at a time when we have been assigned by God to be the first generation of Christian workers to ever represent Christ in a post-Christian America. Every other generation of Christian leaders has served Christ in a Christianized America. God has chosen you and me, has assigned us to live at, for such a time as this, to serve Him in a post-Christian America. We no longer have home field advantage. We are now the visiting team. It changes the, the dynamics radically. There is a huge Bible gap between us and lost people. We know this book. They don't know even what a chapter and a verse are. There's an incredible culture gap between the culture of the evangelical world and the culture of lost people. There's a huge moral gap. Our lifestyles are more radically different than they have ever been. There's a language gap. We speak one language. They speak another. Not linguistic language, but cultural language. How do we effectively represent Jesus Christ to bring in the millennial harvest in post-Christian America? There's no map for this. Because no Christian workers have had this assignment before. I'm excited by it, aren't you? It's not intimidating. It's energizing to have been chosen to God by God to live for such a time as this. How do we do it? <laughs> Guess what? Follow Jesus. John chapter 4. Get your Bible out. If you only brought your Gospel of John this morning, you're in luck. John chapter 4. You knew, didn't you? You said, I just had a vision. I'm going to be in the Gospel of John. John chapter 4. And guess what? We have got a 2,000-year-old blueprint for a brand new situation. Isn't that something? What a surprise. The Bible, ever relevant. We have in John chapter 4, and you've spoken from this passage, you know this well, in John chapter 4, perhaps the most extensive personal conversation Jesus had, we ever have recorded of Jesus and another person in the Bible. God took a lot of space, revelation space, to give us this account. 
And in this, Jesus is demonstrating how you leap across a huge culture gap to bring someone to Christ and ultimately most of a village to Christ. Now, the same principles still work. I mean, Jesus had so many chasms between him and the Samaritans. You've got a racial gap. You have got a huge cultural gap. You have got great religious differences. You've got huge moral gap. I mean, you couldn't have a huger gap than between him, the sinless Messiah, and the woman who sleeps around in Sychar. I mean, you've got a gender gap. You have, I mean, it's one, it's a grand canyon between Jesus and this woman. Well, we, we who have been asked to be cross-cultural missionaries in our own country have so much to learn from what Jesus did in John chapter 4. And here's what we're going to be looking at as we begin reading in John chapter 4 and verse 4. We are going to be looking for what I call the five imperatives for 21st century impact. Five imperatives to have an impact on 21st century America. John chapter 4, verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. <laughs> so well, right away, she's bringing up the gap immediately. You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, oh, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Well, there's more to the account, and we'll look at more of it in a few minutes. But let's pray, and then let's head into our Lord's marching orders for the 21st century, revealed to us in the first century. Let's pray. Father, we are handling something holy when we handle your word. And so we pause to pray, not because that's what you're supposed to do in a Christian meeting, but it's because we really, really need you. I really, really do. And I pray that you would make room in every heart in this room for whatever it is you want to say to us. I pray you would encourage us where we are following your example. Challenge us where we could do better at following your example. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would visit every seat every person in this large gym and further equip and enable us to help bring in a greater harvest and to have increasingly more and more of that abundant, supersized life you want us to have. 
We pray for your special touch on speaker and listener, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Five imperatives for 21st century impact. Number one, communicate in non-religious language. Communicate in non-religious language. Jesus did such a good job here, didn't he? I mean, he, he doesn't walk up and say, let's discuss redemption. Let me share with you the plan of salvation. He says, let's talk water. Let's talk being thirsty. It is such a creative, non-religious presentation of his message. He models communicating in non-religious language. Now, remember we said think, what's the M word? Mm, missionary. Think missionary. What kind of school do missionaries go to before they mish? Language school. That's right. They go to learn the language of the people with whom they're going to be communicating. That is less obvious when we all speak English. But there's different cultural languages within English, and we have our subcultural language called Christianese, and we speak it, and we don't even know we are. We're not aware we're using words that a post-Christian will not understand or will misunderstand. So we have to make sure that we not only transmit the gospel, but we translate the gospel. Translation is a basic missionary commitment. If I am a missionary in a post-Christian culture, I must translate my message into words they will be able to comprehend. I was reading again, as I've read so many times, Matthew chapter 13, the account of the four kinds of soil and the four responses to the Word of God. And it's interesting, of course, we all want the last one that bears fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. And all the times I read it, uh, most of them, I missed this one point. In all four examples, they all four have one thing in common. They all hear the Word. The one that doesn't make it, the one that gets choked by thorns, all of those, including the one that reproduces, they all heard the Word. Do you know what is the one difference in Matthew 13? The only thing that makes that fourth soil produce so, so abundantly is it says, Jesus says, this is the man who hears the Word and understands it. It is not enough that they hear it. They have to understand it. And, of course, much of that work is the work of the Holy Spirit. But the human communicator needs to do all that we can to make sure that we're making it understandable. When I um, had the opportunity, and by the way, one of the great thrills of my life was this opportunity to go down and be with Rachel Saint with the Alka Indians several years ago before Rachel went home to be with the Lord. Many of you will know that five American missionaries were martyred by this Stone Age tribe who'd never even heard of the name of God. And uh, Nate Saint, Rachel's brother, was one of those. And amazingly, Rachel Saint went back to that very tribe and began to translate the scriptures. I had the opportunity while I was there, we did a radio program to tell a new generation of young people this most incredible missionary story of the 20th century. And I had a chance to talk to Minkaya. Minkaya was one of the murderers of the five American missionaries. Today, one of the pastors of the Alka Church. That's the power of our Savior. Minkaya, we spoke through a translator, of course, because my Alka isn't really too fluent. And 
as we went back and forth, he said, you know, Ron, what we did on that beach that day was terrible. And I realized as he began to share his testimony that Rachel Saint had had her hands full in communicating the gospel to the Alcas because they had in their language no word or concept for forgive. You didn't forgive. No one ever had been forgiven. So they didn't know what forgive was. If you did something to me, I speared you to death. There was no forgiving. How do you communicate the gospel without forgiving? Well, when Minkaya shared his testimony with me, he began to smile after telling me first how awful they felt about what had happened on that beach. He said, but you know, he said, I'm getting old now. And he said, one day I will see Jim Elliott and Nate Saint soon. Because Jesus has washed our hearts. What had the missionary done? What all effective missionaries do? She had found a way to say it when they had no concept for it. They all understood dirty and clean. Jesus washed our hearts. That's how missionaries think. Think missionary. Translating the gospel into their language. The problem is that a lot of wonderful words, many of them biblical words, without a non-religious explanation, either will not be understood or will be misunderstood. For example, at the hotel where I'm staying, if you stop ten people in the lobby and said, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Probably eight out of ten would say yes. How many do you think believe biblically? Have saving faith? One, two maybe. Well, there's crusade people there, so it might be a higher average right now, but normal, on a normal day. Now, believe is, uh, has been a very effective way to express what we need to do when we come to Jesus Christ. But today, that word is, 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 doesn't communicate it. They, they, they maybe think they do. And we say, well, no, you don't. <laughs> you said you do, but no, you don't. So I've had to find a way. I've grappled for a way to say, well, believe is kind of like what happened the day I was drowning in Lake Michigan when I was 10. And a lifeguard came for me. I could not rescue myself, and I grabbed him like he was my only hope. That's the Bible's concept of belief. It is total trust. It is total commitment. It's what a drowning person does with a lifeguard. You are my only hope. Did you ever do that with Jesus? Oh, no. No, believe is not just a, a, a mental agreement. It's not agreement. It's commitment. But we have to explain what it means in non-religious words. The word sin is relatively meaningless in our culture today. How can you be out of bounds if there's no bounds? What is sin? Well, sin is best defined by the middle letter. S-I-N. Right there. Sin is saying, God, you run the universe, I'll run me. I'm not interested in running the universe, but I will run me. Sin is you running your life when God was supposed to. It's not breaking religious rules. It's you running your life. That's what sin is. We need to define the word in non-religious language. I say that we were created, one of the examples I like to use is that the earth was created to revolve around the sun. Colossians 1.16 says, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. I've told that to thousands of people across the country. You were created by Him and for Him. Guess who you live for? For me. Created for Him, live for me. Created for Him, live for me. That's why it doesn't work. The earth was created to revolve around the sun. What if the earth goes over here and says, I'm tired of that orbit over there? 
I'm going to go in my own orbit over here. All life will cease. Because the earth was created to revolve around the sun, not in an orbit of its own. What is sin? Sin is me leaving the orbit I was created for to revolve around my creator and go over here and say, thank you, I'm in my own orbit. All life will cease. Explaining the gospel in non-religious language. Follow our Lord's first century model going into the 21st century. Communicate in non-religious language. If they're going to reject Christ, let it not be because of my vocabulary. I want to do everything I can to make it understood. And let's not and I'll tell you, that's leaving your comfort zone, isn't it? Part of leaving your comfort zone is the language you're comfortable with. To say, I've got to work at this and go where I'm uncomfortable and where I have to struggle to communicate in order to make it clear. But this is life or death information. It must be in the words they'll understand. Here's a second imperative. Second imperative for 21st century evangelistic impact is this. Connect with lost people where they are. Number one, communicate in non-religious language. Number two, connect with lost people where they are. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Jews had to not go through Samaria. They made it a point. Jewish boys didn't go in that neighborhood. This is not a good place. Jewish people went around Samaria. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Because that's where you reach Samaritans. If you want to reach Samaritans, don't hang around Jerusalem. Go to Samaria. Don't wait for them to come to your meeting. Go to theirs. So he went to their meeting. Jesus goes where the lost people are. It's the story of his life. He doesn't just have rallies at the synagogue. He is out on the street. He's at the wedding. He's at the party. He's down on the beach with the longshoremen. Jesus is where he's connecting with them. Why? Let me. I'm going to misquote a verse. You tell me what I'm leaving out. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to save that which was lost. What did I leave out? You can't save them if you don't seek them. I have never, have I ever heard in the history of the Ocean City Beach Patrol down at the Jersey Shore, which has a hundred year history of never having lost anybody. Well, I have never ever heard of one drowning person who came up to the lifeguard station, knocked on the door and said, would you please rescue me? For 100 years, in every single case, the lifeguard had to go out where the dying people were. They didn't come to them. Connect with lost people where they are. Don't just schedule a meeting and hope they'll come. And that's what Jesus did. Now, where are they? And when I say where they are, I mean not just where they are geographically, that's part of it, but where they are culturally and linguistically. Where are they? Well, they, we're talking about post-Christian people who don't know there is a right or wrong. I didn't say they don't know what's right or wrong. They don't know there is one. And Josh McDowell has made this so clear across the country that literally the field has no boundaries. So we're talking about an answer for sin and there's no concept of anything being right or wrong. They don't know our book. And as I said last night, and this is important to realize, most post-Christian people do not ever plan to go to a religious meeting to hear a religious speaker talk on a religious subject in a religious place, which is most of how evangelism has been done over the, over the, you know, the 20th century in America. They're not, they don't have any plans to do that. And here's a fundamental fact that's really challenging for us in evangelism. 
Sin is a non-issue. Sin is a non-issue to a post-Christian person. Since there are no absolutes, since there is no right or wrong, since there are no boundaries, you can't be out of bounds, we're coming and saying, Christ died for your sins, and they say, that's a nice story. If they listed their top 20 issues in their life, sin would not appear on the list. Now, how do you communicate the gospel to people for whom sin is a non-issue? Well, you got to go where they are, and let me see, and I'm going to answer my question in just a moment. Let me give you three ways to go where post-Christian people are. And many of you are doing this already, and I hope this will be an encouragement to you. Three ways to go where lost people are. One, reach them on their turf. Reach them on their turf, on neutral ground. I know that many of you, this is the way you do evangelism is not to expect them to come to a religious setting. They probably, the people who need Christ the most, would be the least likely to do that. I think sometimes people want to say, well, I'm, I'm really not comfortable going out there to the park and the beach and the campus. And Couldn't we just, we got this big building, couldn't they just come in here? We spent a lot of money on this place. And I'm not really comfortable. I don't care if you're comfortable. You're going to heaven already. I care if they're comfortable. We've got to reach them in a place where they will feel comfortable. So that's why the center ministry becomes the living room, the school, the campus, the uh, workplace, the basketball court. I know a guy who does lunches, uh, does a little breakfast for hunters on the morning the hunting season begins. And real early, before they ever go out, he does a breakfast. He gives away all these prizes and everything that hunters would like. And, and, and he reaches hunters on the edge of the place they go hunting. That's creative thinking to say, how can I reach people literally on their turf, as my master did? Second way we go where they are is to reach them in their tribe. Their tribe. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily just Native Americans here, but every America is a tribalized place. Everybody's in a tribe. We got the parent tribe. Then we got the single parent tribe. Then we got the singles tribe. We got the skaters tribe. Uh, we got the rappers tribe. We got the community leaders tribe. We have got the uh, military tribe. I mean, take your area, wherever God has assigned you, and divide it up tribally. Those are the natural people groups. Missionaries think about people groups, right? Look for the tribes in your area. Analyze those tribes. Say, what could we do to meet a need that tribe has, and let's do it. We're going to go in and meet a need that that tribe has. Identify your tribes and reach them in their tribes. Go where they are. One of, uh, I think, the, the family life seminars that Campus Crusade does are a good example of saying married couples, that's a tribe. So you're going to try to help meet the needs of that tribe. That's effective evangelism. And it's held, I believe, in a hotel, isn't it? So you're talking about being on turf where they feel comfortable, and you're talking about reaching them in their tribe. But there are many tribes we don't have a tool for. Let's get some more. Let's take a tribe and find a tool to reach them tribally. We do parenting seminars a lot, and I talk on five needs your child must have met at home. I wrote a book on that. And we have found a wonderful response to the gospel of those things. People who don't care about Christ, but they do care about their kids. And they'll come for something like that. Reach them in their tribe. Third way we can reach them where they are is to reach them through their need. 
reach them on their turf, reach them in their tribe, reach them through their need. Now I pose the question, how do you present the gospel to people to whom sin is a non-issue? I have an answer for sin. I don't care. Well, remember this. Though post-Christian America considers sin a non-issue, they are experts on the damage that sin does. Boy, do they know about the damage of sin. They just don't know it's sin that does it. Oh, they know about broken relationships. They know about what selfishness has done to their family. They know about people tearing each other up with their tongues with verbal chainsaws. They know all about the darkness inside of them. They know about the anger they can't control and what it's done to the people they love. They know about the depression that continues to weigh them down. They know about the, the baggage of the past, that the pain of which becomes often unbearable. They know about incurable loneliness, no matter how many relationships they stuff into their life. They know about that. They just don't know that that's sin that does all that. So how do we present the gospel? Very few people ever walk into a doctor's office and say, Doctor, I have cancer. They walk in and they say, Doctor, I have a lump, I have bleeding, I have a headache, have headaches. They don't come in with a disease, they come in with a what? A symptom. So let me give you a chemical equation type of thing here for how we present the gospel. I'll do it with arrows, like a chemical equation. That's all I remember from chemistry, is the arrows. Here you go. Symptom, arrow. Disease, arrow. Cure. Start with the symptom. Go to the disease, end with the cure. Are we changing the gospel? No way. What we're changing is our starting point. Because we used to be able to start with sin. Would you like an answer for your sin? But if sin is a non-issue, no, I don't. So we got to go back with something they do want an answer to. So you go back to the lump that shows you the disease. Would you like to know why there has always been this incurable loneliness at the core of your soul? It's because you're lonely for the person who made you. That's why. Do you know why he's missing? He's missing from all of us when we start out. He's missing because he was supposed to run our lives. We were created by him, for him. I'm living for me. I'm away from the orbit I was made for. So we're into the gospel. But we started with the symptom. Move to the disease. Offer the cure. Don't make this mistake, however. Don't skip the disease. It's all too easy, because who wants to talk about sin? It's all too easy to say, are you lonely? Jesus loves you. You skip the cancer. Their problem is not the lump. Their problem is the cancer. Jesus died for our sins, not our loneliness. He didn't die for our depression. He didn't die for the pain of our past. He died for our sin, and sin ruins everything and causes those problems. It's only where we start, as Jesus started, with this woman's thirst. But you know he was talking about more than just physical thirst. This woman's emotional thirst, her spiritual thirst, had driven her from man to man, one relationship after another, trying to figure out what went in the hole in her heart. She could never quench her thirst. It took her a little while to figure out that that's what Jesus was driving at. 
But she finally got it. And Jesus knew that He was beginning with her need, her thirst for something satisfying. He modeled it for us. Reach them through their need. What are some of their needs? Let me tell you some of the open doors on post-Christian hearts today. My kids. If they're parents, you help them as parents and show them a parent savior and you'll have their attention. I love to share in our parenting seminars. I've even been doing it in the native Alaskan villages. I'll be doing it again this week. After we talk about the five needs your child must have met at home, and by the way, you have to give them legitimate help with that. Don't just say, if you're a parent, Jesus loves you. They need to get some specific help from you first. But you win the right to be heard. So when you get to Jesus, it isn't like you're talking about something religious. It's like you're talking about something mommy, daddy. Something parents need. I tell parents about Romans chapter 7. Listen to this. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I hate, I do. Hello, every mother and father in America. I'm becoming my mother. I'm becoming my father. I hate this. Can't stop it. Over here is the guy that I need to be for my kids. Over here is the guy I am. How do I get from here to here? Have no way to do it. If I could have, I would have. I'm trapped with the guy I am. The things I hate, I do. And it's hurting. It, maybe it only hurt me before, but now it's hurting my children. And I can't change. And the guy who writes that says, who will rescue me? My only hope is a rescuer. By the way, that's a good synonym for Savior to a, people who don't understand the word Savior. They understand rescuer. Rescuer slash Savior. Rescue someone who gets you out of something you can't get yourself out of, like that lifeguard rescued me. Who will rescue me? Thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's meeting a parent's need for a Savior. My kids, my stress, that's another open door. I'll post Christian hearts. If you can help them know how to replace stress with peace, you will have their attention. That is a lump they can see. Out of control lives. Their emotional pain in the age of more divorce and abuse and neglect and abandonment than ever before, if you can help them know how that emotional pain can be healed, you will have their attention. The emotional pain of their life is ultimately because they have been sinned against and they have sinned. It is because they have been both the sinner and the sinny. They've been hurt by sin. They have hurt others with theirs. And Jesus, a Savior who deals with that, my failures. People are very aware of how they wanted their life to be and how it's turned out. If you will talk about some, a new beginning, someone who can give them a new beginning, they will be ready to hear you. My loneliness. That is an open door on post-Christian hearts. There have never been more bad relationships, more disappointing relationships, more superficial relationships, and people are desperately lonely. Can you help them with their loneliness and lead them to a Savior who said, I will never leave you? Or forsake you. My dark side. That's another one. People don't know what to do with their temper. It is boiling inside of them. They don't know what to do with their depression. They can identify with the dark side of the force. And they don't know how to control the dark side of their force. Because it controls them. They need a savior who tames the monsters inside the human heart. Reach them through their need. I think, uh, let me give you a summary statement of these couple of points. 
to really reach, and I would encourage you to write this down, to really reach the really lost. To really reach the really lost. Reach them with people they know in a place where they feel comfortable through an issue they care about. To really reach the really lost, reach them with people they know in a place where they feel comfortable through an issue they care about. Now, let me add one more. In language, they understand. In language, they understand. That is a blueprint for a greater supersized harvest. Third imperative. Following our Lord's first century model. Number one, communicate in non-religious language. Number two, connect with lost people where they are. Number three, concentrate on Jesus. Concentrate on Jesus. I love the way the Lord himself did this in this passage. You know, if you get down to about verse 21, this lady tries to make it a discussion on religion. You ever have that happen? Yes, but what about... And I love Jesus. He, you know, they... He said, what about the mountain? You guys do this mountain, we do that mountain. Where do you think we ought to worship? Jesus refused to be sucked into that. He stays on course. He said, ma'am, God is a spirit. His worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. What matters is your relationship with God, not which mountain you worship him in. He keeps focusing on the relationship. You know what? She got the message. Because go over in uh, chapter 4 here. Go over to um, uh, verse 28. 29. Leaving her water jar, she goes back to the town and she says to the people, come join a religion. No. Wait. Come sign up for my beliefs. No. Come see a man. She said the issue is the man. She got the idea. Jesus stayed on course, made himself the issue. Remember, Jesus says, follow me. People say, well, what about hypocrites? I don't want to be a Christian because of those hypocrites. Did Jesus say, follow my followers? If he did, then hypocrites are an issue. If he said, follow me, hypocrites are not an issue unless Jesus is a hypocrite. Because he said, follow me. Oh, did you want to change the subject? You want to talk about Christians. We were talking about Jesus. Now, if you want to change the subject, we could. But the only reason not to follow Jesus is if you've got a problem with Jesus. Jesus didn't say, follow my followers. He didn't say, follow my rules. He didn't say, follow my beliefs. He didn't say, follow my religion. He said, follow me. I'm the issue. It's all about me. We've got to keep coming back to the fact that it's all about Jesus. You've got to make a choice about Jesus. Again, I'll go back to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. He could have dazzled the Corinthians with his theology on any subject. But he says, when I was among you, I was determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus and His cross. Give post-Christian people an unencumbered gospel. Unencumbered with Christianity. Don't give them Christianity. Give them Christ. Don't give them beliefs or church or organization or cultural issues. Give them Jesus. He is the issue. Don't attack their lifestyle. What are you doing with an earring there? Did you miss? 
their problem isn't the earring. What is this music you're listening to? Their problem is not Marilyn Manson. Their problem is they're lost. And they're listening to lost music. Of course. Don't pick on their lifestyle. Give them Jesus. Concentrate on Jesus and His cross. Don't let anybody take you off course into a religious discussion. Stick to Jesus. Jesus made Himself the issue with this woman. She got the point and she said, come see a man. Remember, in evangelism, it's all about, say it with me, Jesus. Concentrate on Jesus. Here's the fourth imperative. Come together with your brothers and sisters. If you want to have the most powerful impact possible, come together with your brothers and sisters. Jesus is trying to get his disciples. They're worrying about lunch, and he's worrying about lives. But John chapter 4, verse 35, he says, Open your eyes. And he's, Samaritans are streaming out of the village, and they're going, What, are we, what about eating? He says, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Here we go. Ready. The ready is plentiful. Guys, let's get together. I want you all involved in this harvest. We, I love Philippians 1.27. It says, stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. I was talking to the crusade director for Billy Graham, who heads up the North American Crusade Organization. And he told me that Ottawa, Canada is one city, probably the only major city in North America Billy Graham had never really spoken in in all those 50 years. And um, he was talking, the crusade leader, they had a wonderful crusade there last year. But he, uh, he said to him, why has there never been any kind of evangelistic effort in this community? And certainly uh, the one city Mr. Graham's never been to, the capital of Canada. The man said, well, I tell you, I've been here all these years. He said, I can tell you one word answer. Disunity. Disunity. The crusade director said, well, why now? Why are you suddenly working together? He said, another one word answer. Desperation. We looked around and realized there's a whole lot more people drowning than are in the lifeboats. Well, he didn't say that. I put it that way. But he said, there's, we are losing. And we got desperate enough, we decided we had to work together. Raise your right hand. Raise your right hand, please. Raise your right hand. Fingers apart, make the air conditioning. Let's get a breeze. Going? I feel a little bit. Good. Now, with your fingers like this, your fingers are wide apart, I want you to turn to the person to your right and hit them in the face. No, go ahead. Yeah. Fingers wide. Go ahead. Hit them in the face. They need it. They need it. Good. It'll feel good. Raise your right hand again. Right hand. Right hand. Now, I want you to take those same fingers, pull them together like this. How many of you are looking forward to this? I don't, we don't have insurance for this, do we, Steve? No, okay. Well, we'll stop there. Now, you tell me which is more powerful. These little separate fingers or the fingers all pulled together in a fist? Now, if you ever see a heavyweight boxing match and you see one guy fighting like this and one guy fighting like this, you bet on this guy. He's going to win. Do you know how we have been fighting the Prince of Darkness like this? Isn't it time all of our ministries and denominations and movements 
came together to make a fist in Satan's face. We need each other. And we're so concerned sometimes about denominational or organizational turf. And turf doesn't matter when people are dying. Who cares who gets the credit for the rescue? Do the lifeguards argue on the beach and say, no, I'm going to get it. No, you get him. No, I'm getting them. They all go after him so somebody will save their life. And often it is our own turf and pride that keeps us from being as powerful as we could be. But we're going into the 21st century marching together, not apart, aren't we? Coming together with our brothers and sisters. Let me give you one last imperative for 21st century impact. By way of review, following our Lord's model, we communicate in non-religious language. We connect with lost people where they are. Concentrate on Jesus. Come together with our brothers and sisters. And last of all, create ambassadors for Christ. Create ambassadors for Christ. Look at what Jesus did. Interestingly enough, he did not march into Samaria and have a revival. He did not go into Sychar and start having a crusade. He gets one woman who is one of them, and the least likely of them to be his ambassador, as it stands. And he gets an ambassador to go into that village. I don't know what kind of response Jesus would have gotten if he walked in cold, Jewish preacher, Samaritan village. But he sends a Samaritan to the Samaritans. Now, do you think Jesus could say it better than she could? Um, hmm Do you think he knows more scriptures than she does? Mm-hmm. But he sends someone who's one of them. If we want to get the message out, we're going to have to decentralize evangelism. We've got it in the hands of a few trained professionals. We've got to send it to the people who are in the best position to reach lost people. If we, in order to reach them, if we have to reach them where they are, who's already where they are? Millions of Christians are already where the lost are. We've got to go where they are. They're already there. We've got to get them going. A wonderful perspective. The pastor of one of the largest churches in America was meeting one of the ladies in his church he's always meeting the people there's too many for him to know and and one sunday he said ma'am what do you do and she said well pastor i'm a disciple of jesus christ cleverly disguised as a machine operator now don't you like that she said oh everybody goes oh there's hazel the machine operator she says that's my clever disguise She said, you know, who is a lost machine operator most likely to listen to? Billy Graham? No. Another machine operator. Who's a lost mommy most likely to listen to? Another mommy. Who's a lost student most likely to listen to? Another student. Who's a lost soccer player most likely to listen to? Another soccer player. Maybe you could say it better, but they're better positioned to get it done. We've got to create, do what our Lord did and send the people back to their tribe to infiltrate their tribe. They're already where the lost people are. How do we do that? First of all, we need to have people get a burden with a name. 
wherever you are with Christian people, help them get a burden with a name. Not just, Lord, help the lost, whoever they may be. But a burden with a name. Dear Lord, please do something about Bobby, and I'll be your man if you'll send me. If you'll give me the words to do it. A burden with a name. Who would you like to take to heaven with you, man? Who are you going to look for when you get there? Lord, excuse me, but is Scott here? What if Jesus says, well, did you bring him? Who do you want to have in heaven with you? Get a name on it. And let's change our church prayer meetings. You'll know a church has come to life when you hear more prayer requests for people that are going to hell than people who are going to the hospital. I had a pastor friend tell me, he said, I'm so sick of our own prayer meeting. I thought I'd never hear a pastor say that. He said, I'm so tired of our own prayer meeting. I said, why? He said, it's all about medical stuff. He said, it's not a prayer meeting. It's an organ recital. But I'll tell you, things come to life when you start praying for dying people and you're doing rescue praying. Get a burden with a name. Then give them training that gives them confidence. Don't just give them a want to. Give them the how to. To follow this kind of a pattern of our Lord's pattern of sharing Christ with another person. Training that gives them confidence and show them how to pray for the lost. You know what I think our motto needs to be going into the 21st century? This is what will blow the lid off the harvest. Let me give you eight words. Every believer, a rescuer. Every unbeliever, a chance. How will every unbeliever have a chance? Not through a mass media campaign, though that can help. Not through crusades, though that could help. But only if every believer is a rescuer, understanding they have been divinely assigned by God to that office, that neighborhood. Do you know why you live where you live? I could afford the mortgage. No. You live where you live because you've been assigned by Jesus Christ as his personal ambassador to take somebody from that neighborhood to heaven with you. How you doing? Do you know why you work where you work? They hired me. No. You work where you work because you've been assigned by Jesus Christ as his personal representative to take someone from that factory to heaven with you. Do you know why you go to school where you go to school? I live in the district. No. You go to school where you go to school because you've been assigned there by Jesus Christ. Folks, I want to tell you, we have been chosen by God to live in thrilling times. The greatest days for the gospel ever. You and I have been summoned by Jesus Christ to join Him in His life-saving work and an incredible moment in history. It is a thrilling, scary assignment. William Barclay, the Bible commentator, in commenting on the Great Commission, where Jesus said, Go into all the world. Can you imagine 11 guys? going and they're being told to go to all nations they're like we, 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 we were thinking Jerusalem's going to be tough <laughs> all nations let's count how many do you count Jesus I count 11 all nations yeah and then he said I am with you always listen to what William Barclay says about that it must have been a staggering thing for 11 humble Galileans to be sent forth to the conquest of the world even as they heard it, their hearts must have failed them. 
But no sooner was the command given than the promise followed. They were sent out as we are on the greatest task in history. But with them, there was the greatest presence in the world. The challenge and the promise. After all is said and done, this doesn't come down to a strategy, though. It all comes down to incurable heart trouble. When it says in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus saw the multitudes, his heart was moved with compassion. That phrase is very difficult to translate in the Greek. It's used only there. But the word, root word there is entrails. Isn't that interesting? It says when Jesus saw the multitudes, something happened way down deep in his guts. Something happened way down deep in his heart. Does it happen to you still? I know it did when you came in. But I also know it's very easy for what was once a passion to become a profession. Because it's happened to me. Pastor in a major city in this country, in an urban church, comes out usually just before his sermon. He's in his office up until that time. But he was not there when the sermon time came. Some of the deacons went in and found the pastor looking out the window. And when they saw him and he turned to them, he was crying. They said, what's wrong, Pastor? Oh, you're looking out those houses. You're, you're crying about the need around here, aren't you? He said, no. He said, I'm crying because it doesn't move me like it used to. Ultimately, it's time for a new brokenness. And perhaps for someone here to pray this prayer. Go ahead, God, and break my heart for the dying people within my reach. For ultimately, it all comes down to an incurable broken heart. And out of that, you will rescue the dying. Whatever it takes. Whatever it costs. When the old life-saving stations rescued people along the East Coast from drowning when their ships went down, they had a simple motto. You have to go out. You don't have to come back. They would rescue the dying. Whatever it took. We have to go out. Let's talk to the Lord of the Harvest right now. Actually, why don't you talk to him? And maybe someone here needs to say, Go ahead, God. Break my heart. What used to be hot has gotten cool. What used to be spontaneous has gotten mechanical. What used to be passionate has become practiced old give me your heart again Jesus will you talk to him Father 
thank you very, very much for choosing us to live at such a time as this. Dear Lord, may the greatest harvest of our lives be ahead of us. For all you have done through this movement and through each individual in this room, may it be dwarfed by the immeasurably more you're going to do. Because there's so much more to do. Lord, we pray you would blow the lid off the harvest and take our imperfections and our inadequacies and rekindle a fire in our soul that will not let us rest so long as there's another one still outside the lifeboat. In Jesus' name.